Hello everyone and welcome to this next instalment of our Brexit and Beyond podcast and this week I'm delighted to be joined by my friend and colleague Jonathan Portes who apart from being part of the UK and the Changing Europe team is also Professor of Economics and Public Policy here at King's. Hi Jonathan. Hi. Thank you for doing this and we were keen to get you on this week of all weeks because of course the economy is front and centre so let me start with the real sort of layman's question. What is happening to the British economy at the moment? Well, mostly it's what's happening to the global economy. We exited from the pandemic actually in surprisingly good shape compared to what might have happened um, with relatively low unemployment and so on. But across the world, as economies reopened, we saw various problems with supply chains. We saw a really sharp spike in energy prices as demand outpaced supply. Um, And that in turn has led to high inflation in most advanced economies, including the UK, as well as continuing difficulties with supply, with supply chains exacerbated now again by uh, the resurgence of COVID in China. So we have this sort of persistent combination of supply chain issues um, combined with high energy uh, prices leading to high inflation pretty much everywhere. I mean, I've got to ask you this, I suppose. Is is Brexit part of this story or not really? Brexit is part of the story for the UK, although probably not the main event. If you look at what's happened to inflation in the UK, US and EU, the first thing you're going to say is whatever is happening is happening pretty much everywhere. Brexit has made some things worse. It has exacerbated some of our supply chain difficulties. It has depressed both UK exports and imports, it's reduced our our trade volumes, and it's probably pushed up prices somewhat, especially food prices. Okay, I just want to dig into this a little bit, because you're the ideal person to explain to our listeners. We published a couple of pieces of work at the UK and the Chase Europe last week, in fact. And let's start with 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 the working paper that Thomas Sampson wrote, which was about the impact of Brexit on trade between the UK and the EU. And the findings were interesting and quite nuanced, weren't they? I mean, can you just talk us through what the economics showed in that paper? The key thing is there there is, I think, general agreement that UK trade has shrunk as a result of Brexit. If you compare what's happened to the total volume of UK global trade compared to where it was pandemic, Um, we're at best flat, whereas pretty much every advanced economy has made significant increases. So compare to any reasonable comparator basket, UK trade has shrunk relative to what you would have expected otherwise. And that is almost certainly mostly down to Brexit. That is the, the consensus view. What Thomas's paper shows in addition to this, which is interesting, is that there has been no disproportionate fall in UK exports to the EU. UK export performance has been, as I said, pretty rubbish, to use a technical term. Um, (laughs) But it's not been any worse to the EU than anywhere else. So it's not clear, therefore, that that's exclusively or wholly down to Brexit, or if it is, the story is a bit more complicated. Similarly, or uh, another puzzle is that actually UK imports from the EU have fallen more than imports from elsewhere. And that, again, is a bit of a puzzle because we haven't imposed the full panoply of import controls on imports coming from Europe. We're basically not checking them very much. And of course, 
um, we're not imposing tariffs because under the TCA, there are no tariffs for the most part. So why have UK imports from the EU suffered so much? It's, it's quite difficult to say. So, you know, the big picture has UK trade been adversely affected by Brexit? The answer is yes. But as you say, the story is quite nuanced. And there's really, I think, a several mysteries still in there. The final point that Tom's paper, which may explain a bit of it, although not all of it, is that small SME exporters have been particularly badly hit. In other words, large firms that know how to deal with paperwork, many of whom already were exporting outside the EU, so were already used to filling in paperwork, have basically absorbed the implications of extra paperwork requiring for exports to the EU. Either they you know, just absorbed it as part of their normal processes, or they're grudgingly shrugging their shoulders and accepting the extra cost, but they're just getting on with it. Whereas that is much less the case for UK SMEs, many of whom appear to have stopped exporting to the EU entirely. Okay, and I suppose two follow-ons from what you've just said. The first is, can I nudge you to speculate as to why we get this rather funny outcome? Because intuitively, as you said, we'd have expected EU imports into this country to have been less affected than our exports to the EU because, you know, as we export to the EU, all the checks are there. And as they export to us, all the checks aren't here. Why, why is that? Is that because EU exporters anticipated problems with Brexit and have adjusted their trading patterns? I mean, what might it be? We are very much in the realm of speculation. It is possible that, you know, for EU exporters, for many of them, the UK is not that, you know, is significant partner, but not not most of their trade. So they've just said, well, we just can't be bothered. You know, we are EU businesses. What we do is within the EU. Sure, it's unfortunate that we've lost this market, but we can live with it. We're not going to suddenly introduce a whole new department that deals with paperwork to get stuff across the channel. We're just going to stop selling to the UK. So that is a possibility. It may be that importers in the UK that could reasonably easily substitute from the EU to elsewhere in the world have decided to do so. And that has worked for some goods. That is what's happening, um, even if it means slightly higher prices overall. But I think there is still a mystery here and and we will see how the data plays out over the next few years. And on this changing composition of our exports, that's to say small firms being replaced by larger firms in the export business. What are the potential implications of that? I mean, will we see, you know, more small businesses going under? What are the practical implications of that? Most small businesses, of course, don't export and don't export to the EU. So it's not like this is going to completely decimate the UK small business community. But for those small businesses which do export to the EU, it is probably quite a significant hit. And they just cannot deal with the paperwork and checks that have now been imposed. So for those businesses in some sectors, I think, you know, some agri-food products, for instance, you know, they are going to take a significant hit. Ultimately, yes, some of them will simply go or have indeed already gone out of businesses. The bigger macroeconomic worry, I guess, again, this is speculative, is, of course, that, you know, big businesses were originally small businesses. And most of the net growth in businesses, almost obviously, is just as a matter of arithmetic, comes from small businesses becoming bigger. So you do worry that some of these businesses who, who have either been forced out or whose growth has been curtailed would otherwise have become the big exporters of tomorrow and that simply won't happen. So you could worry that longer term impacts may be even more negative. 
Interesting. And of course, the other piece of work that we put out last week, again, by a bunch of economists from the LSE, dealt with supply chains and prices in quite granular detail. And, you know, the headline figure there was the figure about the impact of Brexit on food prices. But could you just talk us through how they got to those findings before we actually talk about the findings themselves? So this is what economists call a difference in difference approach, which is looking at what happens before and after an event and what happens to two phenomena, one of which is affected by what you're trying to study and one of which isn't. So what they basically do is that they look at food prices, but not just at the overall level of food prices. They look at the relative level of food prices between goods that we tend to import from the EU a lot and goods that we don't import from the EU very much, if at all. So the difference between, I think, I'm doing this from memory, you know, beef or whatever, which we don't import mm-hmm. very much of from the EU and other um, food products like, I don't know, uh, oranges or blueberries mm-hmm. or something, which we do import quite a bit from the EU. And they looked at the change in relative prices. And what they found that was that food price inflation jumped in relative terms quite considerably for those EU origin products. First, about when we actually had Brexit in January 2020, and then again, rather more, when we implemented Brexit and the Trade and Cooperation Agreement in January 2021. So what they're saying is, look, you can't explain this increase in the relative price of highly EU-dependent imports in January 2021 by reference to interest rates or macroeconomic developments or the pandemic or other sort of wider factors, because it is very specific relative price change of these products at precisely the time when we introduced the TCA. So it's pretty hard not to believe that this wasn't mostly or exclusively driven by Brexit. You see not just an increase in prices overall, not just an increase in food prices, but an increase in food prices in these specific products at exactly the time when, if it were Brexit, you'd expect to see it. So that seems pretty convincing evidence. We should emphasize there's quite a lot of uncertainty about these estimates. The headline figure of 6% is a central estimate. It could be more or less, it is more or less for different goods. And there's some still plenty of noise in the data uncertainty. So we shouldn't, you know, this is not sort of hard, cold scientific fact, but the evidence that there was this bump up in prices and that it was uh, driven by Brexit is, I think, pretty strong. And they do a very good job of showing that. Yeah, but on the surface, it's an enormously sort of significant finding, isn't it? That, you know, the price of some foods has gone up by 6% as a result of Brexit. This is a really mean question to ask you. But if you imagine a world where we didn't have the conflict in Ukraine and where we hadn't had COVID and Brexit had taken the form it had, would that be like a massive deal politically? People looking at the economy, not being able to blame it on anyone else. Would the scale of this impact be such that people would be talking about Brexit very differently, do you think? That is a question more for for people who understand how public opinion works, which uh, which I don't. But I, I, you know, I sort of think that actually, in the end, facts slowly, gradually, in a very messy way, do percolate through. And look, you know, we had three years ago Jacob Rees-Mogg and the Sun telling us that Brexit would mean food prices by, would fall by up to twenty percent. And I and others said this is at best deliberately misleading um, and ignorant. And nobody is saying that anymore. I don't think many members of the public are saying, oh, Brexit has pushed down prices. So, 
you know, ultimately the fact, despite, you know, and of course there are other things happening. There are always other things happening, COVID, Ukraine, the rest of it. But the basic economics that introducing lots more friction into your trading relationship with your closest partner is going to push up prices and making make you somewhat poorer, which is what economists have been saying all along. I think that is percolating into the public consciousness. I think, you know, I don't know, you tell me, but if you did an opinion poll and said, has Brexit pushed up prices? Um, you'd probably get a pretty significant majority saying yes, and quite a large proportion of leavers, I suspect, would grudgingly recognise whatever they think of the pros and cons of Brexit otherwise, that that has been indeed been the impact. So I think regardless of the noise, I suspect it is actually probably uh, working its way through into the public consciousness. How that affects sort of broader political debates about Brexit or our relationship with the EU, I don't know. But the, the fact that in contrast to the David Davis, there will be no downsides. The fact that on the economic side, if at least, it has so far mostly been downsides. I think that is a sort of consensus opinion, right? Yeah, no, very much so. It is interesting to note that, you know, those economic organisations that did the medium or long term forecasting pre-referendum have stuck by their numbers, haven't they? People haven't seen the need to go back and revise their assumptions at all that I know of. Yes, I think that's right. For the most part, I mean, that doesn't mean that you know, we, we, they think we were right. And of course, in the long run, we won't be right. Exactly. Forecasts aren't. But it does mean that so far, at least the data is at least broadly consistent with what most mainstream economists forecast. And obviously, the data has rendered the uh, sort of fantasy forecasts of some of the small minority of fringe, you know, people who are pro-Brexit on actually on economic grounds. I'm leaving again, leaving aside the political, those uh, very small minority of fringe pro-Brexit economists have been left looking rather foolish, I think. Immigration, of course, is slightly different. And here I would say we have revised our forecasts. There are far fewer of us making forecasts about immigration. I'm one of them. But here I would say I have revised my forecast and the facts have not turned out as I would expect. And not because the economics have been significantly different, but because the actual Brexit policy is not the one that I expected uh, three or four years ago. It has been you know, significantly more liberal and consequently the negative economic impacts on the that I expected to materialize as a result of, you know, sort of Theresa May style restrictionist immigration policies um, are no longer my central forecast. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, just to warn you, I do plan to get you back on this podcast to talk specifically about immigration in the not too distant future. So we'll keep our powder dry. But going back to the sort of overall economic situation, I think it's fair to say that you have over the course of the last year been relatively relaxed, not about inflation, but about how permanent this inflation might be. And you've tended to be one of those who see this as a short term thing and not a reversion back to systematically higher levels of inflation with price spirals. Are you still relatively relaxed given what's going on? I mean, I still don't think we're going to have a wage price spiral. I think inflation will fall back quite significantly. Um, I think the question though, and here I'm probably or less optimistic or less firmly optimistic than I was, was how much pain it will go through before we get there. You know, on that, I, I almost certainly was too optimistic in that while I do think inflation will fall back, that fall may be considerably more painful than, than many of us hoped uh, a year ago. So by that, do you mean a fall that is triggered by increasing interest rates that might in turn trigger some kind of recession? 
Exactly. You know, in other words, that to get to that fall, we will have increasing interest rates, lower demand, the fall in real wages, which we're already seeing to some extent, generally lower consumer confidence and so on. None of which obviously are good news for individuals or households. And I mean, realistically, given that, as we've discussed, many, if not most of the drivers of inflation are international in nature and leaving aside the role of the Bank of England, is there anything the government could or should be doing to tackle the current cost of living crisis that it isn't doing, do you think? You know, as my friend and colleague Tony Yates keeps on repeatedly saying, you know, a rise in the relative price of energy in particular, in terms of trade shock, makes the UK poorer and, and government can't stop that. So there is pain. What the government can and does and should control is the distribution of that pain. The government has chosen to inflict most of that pain on poor people. That's simply a political choice. It's chosen to cut the real value of benefits right now by 5%. You know, and we had Boris Johnson explicitly saying that we can't afford to raise benefits because it will uh, push up inflation. But of course, you could, um, you know, if you don't want to increase borrowing. I mean, I think you probably could increase borrowing. It wouldn't be the end of the world. But even if you decided to impose on yourself that constraint of not increasing borrowing, you could take away the money from uh, from other people, from people like you and me, for example. The government's chosen not to do that. It's chosen to ensure that, you know, because energy prices, of course, proportionally hit the poorest worst, the, the people who can least afford it are going to be most hit. And the government has chosen to do little or nothing to alleviate that. And that is purely a political choice. And interestingly, I will come back to wages now. There was a very interesting piece of research out from Xiaowei Wu at the Institute of Fiscal Studies, which confirms what I've been saying for the last six or nine months, which is this idea that somehow low wage workers have benefited a lot from what's happened in the last year. The labor shortages, which we have seen, have pushed up wages at the bottom and therefore low paid people are doing much better. Does not seem to be borne out by the data. In fact, if you look at the changes in wages with respect to just before the pandemic, between December 2019 and now, so smoothing out all the impact of furlough and so on, who's got the biggest pay increases over that last 18 months? Um, is it people working in the hospitality sector where we've seen all these shortages? No, it's finance, bankers' bonuses. Earnings inequality has increased. The people who are doing best um, are. Um, high-paid finance professionals. Quite surprising. I mean, I'm surprised, actually. I was expecting at least some of this to manifest itself in, in better pay for people at the lower end. But so far, at least, to the extent that the earnings distribution has changed at all over the last few months, it's actually become somewhat more unequal. So far, at least, we haven't even got that silver lining of at least the low-paid sectors doing better overall. You know, as I said, that the government could, if it wanted to, cannot get rid of all the pain. The pain has to be taken somewhere. But the government has chosen on whom to inflict the pain. And it's very easy to say what the government could do about that. It could put up benefits. It's very simple. We have a functioning benefit system. After five years of messing up the IT, the government finally introduced universal credit and it works well. We saw that during the pandemic. You want to help poor people in this country. We do have a functioning state. We do have a functioning benefit system. We can, as the pandemic showed, do it. You just put up universal credit. And that paper you were referring to is on the IFS website? It is. 
Perfect. Well, Jonathan, that has been fascinating and we've covered an awful lot of ground. So thank you very, very much for doing this. I should let it slip to our listeners that you're doing this at very, very short notice. So double thanks to you and look forward to having you on again soon. All the best. Thanks.